Um, Amit, thanks very much for agreeing to uh, take part in this discussion and in this series, uh, which I'm doing with uh, various contemporary writers. Um, for those of you not familiar with your work, uh, over the last uh, now over over 20 years, two decades, you've uh, established a quite considerable reputation in a number of areas as a writer, uh, so from Strange and Sublime Address in 1991 to The Immortals. In 2009, you've published five works of fiction uh, in one form or another. You're also published as a poet. Uh, you've published um, quite extensively as a critic uh, with at least four books of, of criticism now to your name, uh, uh, including your uh, study of D.H. Lawrence, um, uh, the collection of essays which we'll talk about later, Clearing a Space, your essays on Tagore. Um, and that's not only your work as a critic, but also as an anthologist. You've, you've, you've uh, put together the Picador Book of Modern Indian Literature and so on, so on as well. You've now, this year, published, um, made your first, I think, major foray into uh, non-fiction with your uh, book on, uh, just called Calcutta, uh, came, out in, came out this year, 2013. But in addition to all of this, uh, like I know one of your heroes going back uh, a long way, uh, like Tagore, you've also, uh, since around 2004, been experimenting with uh, music in various ways, and you now have two albums to your name. Uh, this is Not Fusion, Not Fusion from 2007, and uh, Found Music from 2010. Um, along all of this, you know, as if to add more, you've you've earned various prizes and accolades from the Commonwealth Writers' Prize in 1991 for your first work uh, of fiction to 2012 last year, the, the Infosys Prize, I think, for contemporary literature. Anyway, I'm extremely grateful to you for making the time to do this. And um, as I've been doing in the other uh, discussions in this series, um, what, I've, what I've done is I've chosen a few bits from your work. Uh, which I am keen for us to, for you to read, and in one case, of course, uh, actually we'll just listen to. Uh, we'll have some music right at the end. But um, initially, I've chosen three extracts for you to read, which will then um, use as the basis for a brief discussion between each thing. Ideally, what I wanted to try to do with these choices of what to look at is cover everything uh, the, well, as far as far as we can in the space of about forty minutes cover uh, the range of what you've you've done in your work so from from fiction to your work as a critic to uh, some comments on on Tagore in particular and then finally the music great sounds good um, so the first bit uh, I've asked you to if you could have a look at and read is uh, from Afternoon Rag which is your your uh, second work of fiction 1993 it came out um, and uh, it's from chapter 21 in which we have a uh, the fictional persona uh, at this point walking into East Oxford, and we just happened to be doing this discussion in Oxford, so I thought it was an opportune piece to start with. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, if you'd start off by um, just reading that opening of the chapter 21 from Afternoon Rag. Right. Cowley Road, Ifley Road, and St. Clements. Small, mean, jaunty families live here side by side with the Bangladeshis and Pakistanis. This is the tribe that belonged to Dickensian alleys, the Aboriginal community that led its island life, its daily routines and struggles, and scarcely heard of empire or took part in governance. For them, the supermarkets were built to work in and to shop at. 
not Sainsbury's, but Tesco with its long aisles of shopping trolleys, sides of beef and ham, frozen chips, mango chutney and spinach at tuppence less. Towards such centers they gravitate living in a perpetual present and then walk home to their houses with tiny gardens. Not for them history, old buildings, literature, but an England of small comforts and marriages, happy or unhappy. For them, television with endless runs of East Enders and Coronation Street, showing them their lives and those of their children. There is a church here in Cowley, for they are devout Christians, drinking Protestants, religious not in a theological but in a family way, with roles allocated to the sexes, the men believing and supporting their football team, the women praying and going out shopping, all of them seeming to know the words of the Sunday hymns by heart, but blaspheming and cursing God when they feel like it. Speaking an English that is hardly spoken in any other part of the world any more, with queer proverbs and turns, dropped consonants and vowels, turning the language like meat inside their mouths. Thanks very much. Uh, um, there's a way in which... Uh, uh, a kind of an obvious way in which this maybe maybe for some people not not so obvious I don't know but it, it, an obvious way in which this passage can be read um, and it's part of the kind of sort of protean shape-shifting voice that you that you have in this work um, where it, it reads like a parody of some sort of colonial uh, um, ethnographer uh, wandering into the the uh, the realms of the natives and sending back a report about the life of the natives in this particular that's a parody of that kind of colonial authority describing you know the people uh, one of the things that alerts me to that in particular is just the description of this obviously being a tribe but then you know the, the classic idea of the colonial discourse is that it's living in a perpetual present without history this is a tribe without history um, you know that's a standard a standard uh, kind of late 19th century description of a certain pastoral idyll in some ways it normally is in, in, in the West Indies or in parts of Africa or India or whatever. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a first level um, uh, part where there's a sort of serio-comic voice parodying that kind of writing. But, but there's something that I wanted to ask you about with this passage which seems to point to a much, much uh, deeper preoccupation in your work is uh, an interest in no matter what forms of culture you happen to be talking about, but an interest in the aspects of a culture that are not uh, that are that are excluded or that are marginalised within certain definitions of culture, um, and in particular official versions of a culture, whether that's a national culture or an imperial culture or whatever it might be, official versions or elite versions of that culture, certain figures, voices things get get forgotten so that you know in this case you know the, these are people who've scarcely heard of empire but might be held responsible for empire by certain by other people um, and people who are outside of history old buildings literature that kind of official version of of English culture so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that that dimension of your of your work and your interest in those sorts of hidden recesses hmm and forgotten corners of some cultures. Yeah. Well, I suppose when, when Afternoon Rag is my uh, second novel, and my first novel, A Strange and Sublime Address, is about arriving in Calcutta, a, a young boy arriving in Calcutta, encountering a, a kind of a neighborhood in a city, 
and, 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 and a kind of existence very different from the one he is living in Bombay. Um, with Afternoon Drag, I suppose I make my first effort to put on record uh, that, um, you know, that, that the West is continually different from itself. And this is something that um, that people from my part of the world uh, feel or experience often as little as people from Oxford or England uh, as, uh, are unable to, in a sense, read India in terms of, let's say, just to narrow it down to one thing, let's say, in, in terms of class. So, uh, so an, in, an Indian can, an, an Indian middle class person can read an ind, another Indian approaching from a distance in terms of, of class background, by maybe by uh, the way they look, well, what they're wearing, their, their haircut, and um, the way they walk even, and then the way they talk. Uh, and uh, and you know this is this is something that you kind of uh, realize when you first come here is that um, people from outside the West are in a in a sense indecipherable to the to the West in that in that way and and thereby you uh, um, in the cultural encounter you miss a, a whole evolving narrative. That that brings to life uh, the comedy, but also the historicality and the reality of who you are at a certain point of time. And with Afternoon Rang, I'm recognizing the fact, not out of a sense of duty, but genuinely, that this holds true the other way around as well, that we too don't read, um, we who come from our part of the world, uh, don't actually read, let's say, the English, or even see the the term, the English as a contingent term with various meanings, mm -hmm. and of course, I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which all of us also do that to ourselves when we are abroad, uh, and 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 we become Indian, mm -hmm. and and the English, or the Australian, person, all of them become Western, let's say, when they're traveling through India. Mm -hmm. And so, as a, a, so, they begin to respond as a Western person. And I, and I remember mentioning this in a, uh, in a in a in a review of uh, a travel book on India by Robin Davidson, the Australian writer, uh, who 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 was reporting on her agonies uh, in, in, in during her travels through tribal India, and and speaking as a Western person. And 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 I, and I, and I was just kind of saying that there's this interesting illusion here of who she is, which is an Australian person, mm -hmm. and the specificity of that, what that might mean, somehow doesn't kind of come into play at all mm -hmm. in, the way people, um, in the way people are responding to histories, milieus, people, but also houses and spaces. Um, and, and, and all my work since, since Afternoon Drago, since when I can remember, in some unconscious way or another, even in music, is to find echoes of one thing in another, and they may not be, they may be culturally disparate, 
but they are kind of uh, they converge in some ways which ways which are not sentimental but involve this process of reading across cultures mm-hmm. reading not as a duty but this fissuring which 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 makes you think that um hang on i i seem to know this person uh, he is he is supposed to be the the colonizer or he's supposed to be this or he's supposed to be that but i seem to have seen them somewhere at the back of my habitat but that doesn't mean that i know this person completely in fact there's an estrangement also uh, when this recognition of this fact comes around from my own position of who i thought i was so that process began let's say with simple things like visits to east oxford mm-hmm. of of realizing england is a foreign country and what that means earlier it was just a place which was not home and i wouldn't look at it but to understand what that foreignness means but then over global over over the period of globalization to continue disco- discovering within what is called the west especially europe uh newer and newer but o- but older also provinces that uh, in uh, all kinds of provincialisms uh all kinds of secret kind of regional uh realities mm-hmm. coming to you in in all kinds of ways in which also you know i mean um complicate also the story of let's say the migrant the post colonial migrant abroad complicates that story too mm-hmm. so when i'm speaking about can i give you one example from this uh global encounter of that sense of which this is a prefiguring this visit to east oxford in afternoon rag so during the during the time of globalization by let's say the early 2000s i just thought that you know all these questions of milieus environments specificities neighborhoods were now passé in the global world we we needed to all, think we all become homogenous all become homogenous or yeah. we needed to be thinking about places like airports and multiplexes as redefining mm. what what space was what place was but but then i realized this this too is not completely true mm. and and i had a similar experience but now inflected by globalization to the one i'm describing here in afternoon rag where i'm talking about these people who are as i say in a subsequent paragraph the last chain smokers and meat eaters of england mm-hmm. um so i had a similar kind of experience i was mm, invited by my french translator along with another indian writer to join her to have pink champagne or whatever in montmartre or somewhere like that and and we told her we didn't like uh, we we didn't have a taste for champagne but she coerced her Mm-hmm. us into accompanying her uh, anyway and we were being s- served by a drunk uh, french tall drunk french waiter who obviously didn't like us me and mm-hmm. the other indian author and was kind of glowering at us but also unsteady on his feet so he was a kind of he was a hostile presence but also a figure of fun mm-hmm. uh he would not bring the bill to us and un- until we can when complain to the proprietor and then we were handed the bill and uh, and i said to my french translator let's not tip him and uh we walked out and he passed a comment as we came out of the restaurant i asked simon my translator what did he say and she said he said i now know who to vote for and the the it was 2006 the elections were coming up sarkozy lap and uh, they mm-hmm. were all in contention uh and and when i heard this we i mean 
I, the other author, we, we burst out laughing and the man was still behind the glass staring at us. And thinking back on that um, experience, m many things occurred to me. One is that I had a sense of a person who, who belonged to a place and probably also lived in a place where he was surrounded by minorities. Uh, and uh, um, I too was in this slightly unassailable position of being a global tra traveler. I was no longer in the role of the migrant. Mm -hmm. Something that I, a role I've played as a, a student in England. Mm -hmm. So Visiting a French translator after all. Yeah. yeah. So the, the, and, and I was there for, for the French, uh, the Paris book fair. Uh -huh. um, and, I, I, you know, I, I was in a country which just a few weeks before my arrival there had been trying to keep Mittel out of France. Mittel who was going to buy Arcelor. Uh -huh. So uh, the balance of power was changing, but that is in itself was not as interesting as the fact that I had had this encounter uh, uh, with something that was real, uh, something that came from a, a more fissured sense of what France was, mm -hmm. and something which also proved that neighborhood and milieu could continue to exist and our, our interactions with that could continue to exist in the globalized world. So, so uh, what I'm saying is that the encounters with place, wherever they happen, whether it's the East or the West, are going to happen in these peculiar ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, um, and they are not going to fall in line with either static ideas of the East or West, but also static ideas of migrancy mm -hmm. uh, or, or the power kind of um, power relation. Mm -hmm. um, there are going to be all kinds of people at different points of time who are more or less privileged than you are. Mm -hmm. And you mustn't, mustn't take for granted the fact that you are either more or less privileged mm -hmm. as part of your rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And those things are always going to inform the way you become aware of a place. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, it's also one of the things that that picks up on is just simply going back to the afternoon rag passage that it's what you you're moving into East Oxford, the Cowley Road, that that all the communities that yeah. are there, the version of Englishness that you're mm. getting there and encountering mm. there is, of course, nothing to do with the official postcard version of Oxford itself. No, that you do not see postcards of these kinds of these parts of, of Oxford uh, um, amongst the old buildings and, yeah. and so on and so yeah. forth. Brilliant. Thank, thanks very much, Amit. If we, can, if we can move on to the, the second passage, which comes from uh, Clearing a Space, your collection of essays from 2008. It's actually an essay called Beyond Confidence, Rushdie and the Creation Myth of Indian English Writing. Uh, um, it's just the last paragraph there that I, I wanted you to maybe read out and have a look at, partly because it, it, it takes us into another dimension of, of your work where in a sense, as you've been saying now, there's, there's so much of your work is against static, fixed, uh, or versions of cultures that are tied to particular groups, the, the official version of a culture or even of a place, those sort of things, you've had that sort of interest. But at the same time, which, which if you like, expresses a certain wariness about the, the definition of culture or the concept of culture itself, at the same time, your work has been passionately committed to a notion of uh, culture defining a certain space mm. in, in its own terms and so on and so forth. And, and this passage uh, struck me as being a particularly kind of clear and forceful articulation of that. And I just yeah. wondered if you could read that out sure. and then we could maybe 
Yeah. Take so I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned both of these things because peop, people who mention one thing about we don't mention the other, or, you know, I mean, mm. uh, but yes, I mean, th- there is this kind of uh, dissatisfaction with uh, uh, with static ideas mm-hmm. of, of culture, but uh, but there is also uh, this this defense of culture going on in in my work. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I'm going to read this out now. Uh, the passage you selected. Uh, both the Sanskrit aestheticians of antiquity and much later Philip Sidney, uh, writing in the country that would one day colonize India conceived of poetry and literature as a realm of radical freedom and autonomy. This too is how the site of literature and culture was delineated in modern India around the middle of the 19th century, a realm of freedom that presaged and predated political freedom by almost a hundred years. But artistic and imaginative autonomy differed from the political autonomy that was to be fought for and which would eventually come in one fundamental respect that while the latter necessarily entailed a hardening of identity, of Indianness, and a conflictual relationship with the colonizer, the former, the realm of imaginative autonomy, reserved the right to constantly redefine Indianness, to have no single exclusive notion of it, and to be related to European culture not only oppositionally, but by creative curiosity. That's why Indian writing in the last 150 years represents not so much a one-dimensional struggle for or embodiment of power as a many-sided cosmopolitanism. It isn't enough today to celebrate Indian writing success after having identified what its marks of success are, as if a whole tradition must only and constantly be thought of as an Arivist would be. One needs to engage with its long subterranean history as as hard-earned as political freedom itself, of curiosity and openness. Great. Thank, thanks very much, uh, Amit. Actually, in, in a way, uh, thinking about it, listening to you read that, one of the things that strikes me is interesting. They, they, this is you speaking in your voice as a critic, but it seems also if we go back to Afternoon Rag, if we follow through your fiction in, in various ways, uh, it also seems to articulate something of, of the kind of testiness you felt with the novel itself as a form, and particularly um, the way in which, say, certain versions of the novel, I mean, obviously certain versions that Rushdie has been associated with, not necessarily himself, uh, would necessarily see himself in these terms, but he's been associated with, where, where the novel has a, uh, a certain secondary or supplementary relationship to this political project. In a sense, the, one of the key terms, and I know you've written about this elsewhere, but one of the key terms missing from that little passage that you've read is, is the notion of, of, of the nation and of, of, it comes up in Indianness and so on, and particularly the novel as a form of national allegory. Mm. I know that's been in the, in the back of your mind, and so the cosmopolitanism is a, is a challenge to that. I just wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about how, um, as a writer of fiction, uh, you yourself have have tried not simply to articulate this notion of of culture, uh, but to use your fictional writing as a as a way of articulating that 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 refusal to define and settle things, mm. uh, and, and and in particular a refusal to define and settle things in terms other than what you may be able to do through the literary forms that you're experimenting with and trying out. Mm. Uh... 
trying to think about that one. <laughs> um, but can I go back to this passage for a second? Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I've, I've tried to articulate this in a certain kind of way as a, um, as, as a, as a kind of uh, dichotomy. Um, uh, 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 and, but I also remember, the, um, I tried to address this whole question of what it m- might mean or might have meant to suddenly become something called an Indian mm-hmm. uh, in the 19th century and then begin to engage with cultures across the board in a certain kind of way which cannot be encompassed by uh, either by the term that was current at the time the term native mm-hmm. from which the term Indian is subtly different um, but cannot be um, encompassed by Indian being a totally nationalistic term um, and cannot be either also uh, uh, encompassed by uh, you know post-colonial or Saidian notions of how Uh, a person from a particular kind of culture might be engaging with, let's say, the culture of the country that has colonized that culture. And and those the lines of contact and affinities are, are, are complex. But I remember dwelling on the fact that this this creation of this category, what the genealogy of it, I'm not completely sure, but the creation of this category, Indianness or Indian, is a very interesting creation. And it seems to me that its thrust is not to create, in, at the beginning, uh, a nationalistic identity or category, but a, a humanistic category. Uh, so, just as much as certain other National uh, national categories are also actually um, fundamentally positing themselves as humanistic categories. Uh, Indianness is doing that, mm-hmm. and and that's that, that, whether or not we agree with it, whether whether or not we think it deserves to be any more than any other such category deserves to to uh, you know take such a right for for granted. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that. A kind of modulation has been effected, which is very important and interesting, and it allows uh, the Indian to do a number of things. Mm-hmm. So, as I say in this piece, which was a piece on Amartya Sen, actually, which came out in the TLS, mm-hmm. is that with this category, uh, I mean, suddenly at a certain point of time, if you're you as an Indian, so it's a secular category, it's a humanistic category. You stop reading the Bhagavad Gita or Shakespeare or the Quran or whatever. As a as a Hindu who belongs to a certain caste or a certain region or a Muslim who belongs to a certain community, you begin to read as an Indian, mm-hmm. and and this allows this category to be posited as a, a nationalistic category uh, uh, on the political level, but on another level allows for an engagement 
with the culture of those you might be politically opposed to mm-hmm. because it, it it is the insertion of a certain category of humanism mm-hmm. into that whole whole province mm-hmm. of of being mm-hmm. i think that 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 isn't recognized enough mm-hmm. you know the the uh, uh, the place the modulation called indianness the place it has in this narrative of humanism and what then it allows in terms of cross cultural engagement mm-hmm. that might often be at odds with or not logically related to one's political position mm-hmm. and that uh, and then going on from there you you can see that affinities come about in that category to do with uh, the politics of culture uh, and as they do with me uh, and and um, they play themselves out in in different ways mm-hmm. um, so th- that's that's kind of one thing that I wanted to point out mm-hmm. the other thing I wanted to point out is again I mean why over here I'm partly speaking about um, this realm of of cultural f- of of artistic freedom of creative freedom mm-hmm. um, is because let's say the first people who began to talk about culture like Tagore for instance in that particular way mm-hmm. are also having to position themselves against various things but what's uppermost on on their mind in terms of what they're positioning themselves against or in distinction to is not actually the culture or the person of the colonizer mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a particular kind of historical archivist mm-hmm. i mean he has great respect for them mm-hmm. but he's saying his his cultural practice and let's say the engagement uh, he has for instance with nursery bengali nursery rhymes is in distinction to the engagement the historical archivist collecting those nursery rhymes has mm-hmm. um so so um so he's he's throughout his life right till 2 weeks before his death he had a problem with the historicizing uh and as he called it slightly pedantic um tendencies of some of the intelligentsia in bengal around him mm-hmm. and against that he had to kind of um define a realm of of freedom mm-hmm. the realm of freedom was important to him because again he was not just a romantic uh artist who spontaneously wanted to just be gambling in the kind of world of his creativity yeah but because he was um he was a cross cultural bricklayer mm-hmm. he was a hoarder of various things from his own culture from low from low culture in uh, popular cult- oral culture uh, high culture this is this is then's music it's there in uh um the, the autobiography is written by uh people in his family as to how they used to hoard stuff mm-hmm. you know overheard stuff and this is not a new thing i mean amir khusro in the 13th 12th 13th century whenever i can't remember the exact date uh, um is is hoarding i mean he's one of the first kind of intellectuals mm-hmm. that we still remember and creative people in india really somebody who is a counterpart of tagore mm-hmm. uh, 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 who is also hoarding so now um 
But to be able to do that kind of playful reaching across mm -hmm. according to certain affinities, which it is up to the critic to find out mm -hmm. the, the, the tendency and the, and, the, and the direction of those affinities. To do that, you have to reserve for yourself a domain of freedom. You have to fight for that domain of freedom, mm -hmm. which cannot be curtailed by a certain understanding of history or a certain interpretation of history. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that is what he's struggling to do. I'm not comparing myself to Tagore, but I, I would say that many of us share, uh, at least in India and maybe in other parts of the world, the necessity of, um, of insisting on a domain of freedom and play because many of us are engaging across the board in a cross-cultural kind of bricolage or cross-fertilization or affinities of all of all kinds mm -hmm. and the narratives of those are not the narratives of the historian mm -hmm. and 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 it one is talking about this space positioning oneself against those those narratives as well as the present day globalized versions of those kind of pre-made narratives which are inherited by, say, marketing people mm -hmm. or people who want to think of Indian writing in a particular way, let's say, just to take one example. I mean, they too are inheriting certain pre-made narratives mm -hmm. or creating what looks like a pre-made narrative. Um, and it's, it's always to fight that because one's um, survival as an artist dis uh, depends upon uh, this, this kind of uh, across the board borrowing and and and, and movement mm -hmm. that that one argues for this realm called culture sure. as a realm of freedom and and i mean maybe just to add one thing there because I, you've mentioned Tagore so it would be uh, the next bit i wanted you to read actually does come from some comments you made on Tagore which is perfect lead onto that but but in a sense maybe we should also just clarify clarify i presume also what you mean when you use the word like play you're not using it just in the sense of non-serious playfulness, no. but also a kind of looseness, a play in the system. So where the, where certain again sort of official versions or the the historical version or the political version or something will will maybe not necessarily allow for that looseness. Yeah. So there's a play in that in that sense as well as players, even sort of testing notions of what might be deemed to be serious or yeah or comic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. an it's a kind of uh, aesthetic play which al but which also ch ch in the interests of delight but which also challenges pre-made cultural uh, uh, notions mm. about things which is why it goes beyond uh, things that wonderful though they are I mean things like Bakhtin might have said and others because those get somehow appropriated mm -hmm. in yet another pre-made kind of narrative yeah, yeah, yeah. packaged um, hybridity hmm. uh, that sort of thing. Great. I mean, that does actually lead us to the next passage I've chosen, which actually, in some ways, uh, well, it's partly because it's useful that you've just been talking about Tagore, but it's also, um, it touches on the whole question of what you're talking about and what you're trying to address with this notion of the cross-cultural, that, that sort of curiosity and openness to interconnection, intercultural connection. It also touches on the notion of translation in all its forms mm. in, very, in various ways. And this... this um, Passage that comes from uh, that I've asked, uh, I'm going to ask you to read comes from your collection of essays uh, on Tagore, which uh, which is just called On Tagore, uh, appeared in in 2012, and it's from the 
the, the preface that you write, which is talking about, uh, in a sense, the, the prompt for this collection of essays, the, the moment of, of all of this was the 150th mm. uh, anniversary mm. uh, of, of, of Tagore's uh, birth uh, and, and so on. So that was the, the trigger in many ways. Um, but it's this particular passage where uh, I, I've, I've selected where you, you talk in particular about Tagore's uh, own translations into English, uh, and he was translated by others as well. He has been very successfully translated by, by others like uh, like Kitaki Dyson and various other people that you you mention. Mm. Um, but that there was for Tagore um, a wider aspect of translation that was as much of an opportunity for him as it was a problem. Mm. Um, and this is a passage where you where you touch on that. And so I wondered if we could use that as a precursor to talking about some questions of translation in relation to you and your own work as well. Okay. I'll read out the passage. Tagore's English I'll start again. Tagore's English version of the Gitanjali, for which he got the Nobel Prize in nineteen thirteen, is what Mother Teresa once was to Calcutta, the royal family to England, and Ben Kingsley to Gandhi, a tantalizing mirage that obstructs the view of what's behind it. And the Tagorean abstraction, not just from the Gitanjali, but from a variety of translations he did, is remarkably handy and will not go away. Rest belongs to the work as the eyelids to the eyes. Plucked out of the air, thus they're ludicrous, and one can't think how the original would be better. But poetry that possesses a high degree of abstraction is particularly hard to translate, especially some would add to a language attuned to empiricism like English. For instance, what do we make of these? Ah, and around this centre, the rows of onlooking blooms and unblossoms. With nothing of language but a beating in the sky, from so precious a place yet future verse will rise. O oh, my rapt verse, my call, mock me not, not for the bards of the past, not to invoke them have I launched you forth. I said many things to him, for whatever poets think and sing is mostly the angels and his. All our words are but crumbs that fall down from the feast of the mind. The first is from Rilke, the second from Malame, the third isn't a translation at all but is from Whitman, the fourth is from Holderlin, the fifth from the charlatan Khalil Gibran. It's Gibran's ingratiating proffering of wisdom that gives him away, but the others don't come across too well either. Indeed, Mallarmé, whom every student of literature knows of, not just as a major French poet, but as a crucial figure in the history of modernism, is a bit of a disaster in English. Yet, in contrast to Tagore, there's no fundamental debate about him because we take the French and modernist canons on trust and the Anglophone critics who made up their mind about him were multilingual. Thanks very much. So, in a sense, this, this does point to uh, some of the, the difficulties of why, what might be otherwise sound like a rather a happy world of cross-fertilization and mixing mm. that we've been talking about before. It's something uh, that we want to see in exclusively positive terms and something that's reasonably easy to achieve. Mm. But in a sense, what you're talking about in this passage are some of the real pitfalls of those moments of translation. Mm. And in, in Tagore's case, as you talk about in the, in the, in the, a bit before this uh, passage that you've just read about, of course, the, 
the biggest difficulty and in, in some ways the trigger for this preface that you wrote is that uh, people in Britain uh, particularly um, writing about the anniversary and saying, you know, who who reads Tagore now? Mm. Why, why read Tagore mm. now? And it's partly because, you know, he's just now associated as with this kind of fixed image yeah. of the the wheel on Eastern Sage yeah. uh, and with Gitanjali and its abstractions and, and yeah. its, its weird sort of metaphysical romanticism. Yeah. He's got sort of frozen in that image. Yeah. And so that, that's, that's itself itself part of the the problem of translation where he he gets he got packaged in that way yeah and a lot of what you say about the is actually trying to free him mm. from from that that uh, version yeah uh, which was of course created at the beginning of the 20th century with the associate with yates the nobel prize and all of that mm. but i wonder if you could just maybe talk about both those things, in, in particular, the importance of Tagore for your work and that particular problem for mm. Tagore, but also more generally about that issue of, if you like, the pitfalls or the dangers of not so much, it's not just linguistic translation, but there's a, a kind of a concept of cultural translation, mm. which, which can also be a, a force that you have to reckon with. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, Tagore is a, is, is a huge problem. I mean, um, I have tried to address this whole problem of Tagore partly because he was forced on my throat as I was kind of uh, growing up and, and I'm a Bengali, so he was all around me, he was in me as well. Um, but, but, uh, but then I began to make um, my own discoveries of Tagore. Uh, but, you know, he is um, an extremely interesting figure uh, and that's one of the reasons why I keep writing about it, but also because uh, I keep writing about him because he is a problematic figure and at, and is at odds. I mean, he's not necessarily more important to me, let's say, than some some other poet mm -hmm. whom I might have equal regard for. But I just think that um, some of the ex as an experimenter, he is uh, uh, you know he's unparalleled, and even as a songwriter in Bengali. Um, he is astonishing and all the more astonishing when you think that people, unless they know Bengali, have no access to that very specific quality mm -hmm. of each one of his kind of linguistic turns and his phrases. Mm -hmm. That makes him even more interesting and frustrating. Tagore was packaged, but then he packaged himself mm -hmm. and, and, um, and, and he... He simplified when he was translating himself into English. He simplified himself and later on became kind of aware of the fact that he had done that. And, and so he was playing almost, in a sense, the role of a kind of um, copy editor or an editor with a marketing person sort of uh, overseeing what they're doing yeah. to see to it that his work um, would remain consumable and publishable mm -hmm. uh, widely in a certain kind of way. Uh, that 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 is that is interesting, and that is puzzling, and that that makes him enigmatic. Uh, I I just saw an exhibition about some painters he had Bauhaus painters he had introduced into Calcutta in 1922, and and there are there's some film footage of him visiting various parts of the world at, at the time, including Europe. And I, I suppose that film footage is there to remind us how we became interested in Bauhaus painters, etc., mm. etc. 
Uh, he had been he had been interested in European culture f- since he was a teenager, but but the film footage shows a man who's kind of hamming it up, you know, uh, and who's really be- behaving like a like like a minister mm-hmm. of state, uh, um, and what is what makes him doubly enigmatic is that at the same time here is a man who is interested in clay mm-hmm. and painters of that kind and and is allowing that to kind of converge into interests of his own as he begins to paint later in life um just just the evolution the very interesting evolution that is going on in the man as a as a writer as a musician as a poet side by side with this invention of this kind of political persona mm-hmm. one can't call it anything else mm-hmm. uh makes him doubly enigmatic mm-hmm. if he had just sold out let's say like 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 maybe i don't know julian barnes did no maybe not and yeah. <laughs> uh, but if he had just plain sold out yeah like some of the successful writers of our time who unless they have something in their trunks or you know on their hard disks which will prove us wrong then it, it, it would have been merely puzzling as to why a person who wrote so well towards the beginning puzzling but also kind of confirming in a way mm-hmm. uh, why uh, how is it that somebody who wrote such quirky or interesting things towards the beginning of their careers turned up writing such conventional stuff later mm-hmm. on um because it beca- it is a kind of um it is a kind of temptation to market your your own successes mm-hmm. but with with tagore the creation of the success first of all which was in the western world which was anyway a kind of misled maybe even maybe even strategic act and then the continual sort of rehearsal of that going side by side with this extremely intelligent man evolving questioning himself questioning others mm-hmm. he that makes for some i mean something quite unprecedented mm-hmm. um which is why i kind of off the cuff as it were returned to him mm-hmm. a time and again mm-hmm. um there were two questions so yeah. another one well it was it was uh, i mean actually in many ways that, that uh, i was just thinking of what you what you're talking about um mm. to go there it's, it's almost as if he's 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 kind of ripe material for Borges's short little story Borges yeah. and I you know there's this kind of <laughs> pursuing this figure yeah. of to go that, yeah. that, that that's around but but you know in a way that the 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 um, and Borges had has had absolutely no time for to go yeah. you know yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah exactly yeah um but uh, maybe maybe actually we can pick up on the so there was a specific question about to go that I asked but there was a more general question about cultural translation mm. but maybe we can we can park that one for now and and move on to the next extract because actually that this does touch on uh mm. uh that uh, that that uh, preoccupation in your own practice and this mm. and this is uh, uh more to your musical career and what what you've done with that um And so what I thought I would just do is play a very short extract from towards the beginning of uh the the piece called the Leila Rift to Todi mm-hmm. uh from your from your first album which is the um, Not Fusion album from 2007. Mm. Um just so that we can sort of get a sense of of how you everything that you've been talking about in terms of linkages cross fertilizations those kinds of mm. exchanges um has also been something that you've developed uh, in your music. Mm. um and uh if we could maybe just sort of play that extract and then 
Uh, talk about where that's where that's come from and where do you think it's going uh, as as the last item to sure. to discuss. So this is uh, the uh, just an extract from the beginning of the Leila Rift Tutori. Just to use that as our, our last piece, I mean, you pointedly called that first album, you know, this is not fusion. So this is kind of a René Magritte style of uh, uh, of title and and uh, and music. Because of course, just listening to that, hearing the uh, moving from the rag todi into into Eric Clapton, yeah. everybody of course will immediately think of fusion and yeah. and, and so on and so forth. Um, but you pointedly called it not fusion, trying to prevent that. Um, and I just wondered one of the things when that when that album first came out, and uh, just listening to it and thinking about what you were you were doing with it, um, I had I had the my own idea in my own mind was that it's as if you were saying that fusion music, you know, the kind of thing that we associate with, say, uh, uh, Paul Simon and Ladysmith Black Mambazo, those kinds of things of the '80s, of the '70s, '80s, and '90s, that 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 sort of fusion music. Fusion music was the kind of musical soundtrack to the era of multiculturalism um, and uh, it it seemed to me that what you were trying to do by going calling this not fusion and trying constantly to highlight that it's in various ways not only in terms of who your members of your band were but also what you were doing musically was different mm. uh, to to the kind of fusion music of multiculturalism it also seemed to be saying we needed to move beyond the terms of reference set by the multicultural debate hmm. as the only way of understanding what you've been talking about throughout this discussion of, of cross-cultural connections and linkages, hmm. that there's other ways of understanding and thinking about that. Yeah. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that sense yeah. of the broader cultural background, between, and, but also, of course, what you were doing specifically in musical terms. Yeah. Um, well, as, as, as a kind of musician, I've, I've had a life which consists of a series of kind of uh, deaths and births you know so my first incarnation was as a guitarist and as a singer of other people's songs and I tried to become a singer-songwriter in the Canadian mold and then I um, you know got drawn towards Indian classical music and that's what took up most of my time as a practicing musician in terms of practicing 
literally practicing, you know, uh, during the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 then, you know, I, I, I started this project in 2004 because after having lived in England for 16 years and having returned to India in 1999, I began to actually listen to my old Western popular music records, which I had stopped listening to during the time I was a classical musician. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about different selves, different decisions, but also different selves over here one comes to inhabit. Mm-hmm. And when one in, when you inhabit those selves, you don't think the other self will ever return. Uh, but they, sometimes the older self returns in unexpected ways. Uh, and, and so um, around 2004, I had... I had begun to listen to to Western popular music, and I was listening to Jimi Hendrix, listening to him playing the blues, and hearing kind of echoes of pentatonic ragas, five-note ragas, mm-hmm. in what he was singing. And it's around that time that one morning, as I was singing, practicing rag tori, that I heard the riff to Clapton's uh, uh, Leila in mm-hmm. some of the notes that he was singing. Now, um, why? I think it was my wife who suggested just call it not fusion because I was saying this is not fusion. So why don't you call the album this is not fusion, she said. So um, I think the reason I was saying that it's not fusion is firstly I was distinguishing it from what Indian musicians call fusion, mm-hmm. which is let's say a bit of raga with bass guitar and drums uh, in, in the background. And there are so many kind of reasons, technical, musical reasons as to why it isn't there. You also wouldn't, in Indian fusion music, hear something like this. Mm-hmm. You know, a quotation of, from the Derek and the from Derek and the Dominoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on on just on that kind of obvious level, it's not fusion as as it is understood there. Mm-hmm. But secondly, I thought it wasn't fusion because it was, it didn't kind of, it didn't subscribe to or adhere to the kind of um, parameters within which Indian fusion existed and still exists to a certain extent since the days of Shakti and John McLaughlin. Uh, And which is basically that you have Indian classical musicians on one side and you have a Western uh, jazz musician on the other and they come together and the Indian classical music tradition is uh, occult and uh, difficult and uh, somehow spiritually renovating for the uh, for the jazz musician who's a modern. Mm-hmm. Uh, the modern meets the immemorial, and and then this fusion music happens in which somehow, um, you know, the immemorial remains immemorial. The modern remains modern, but yeah. they get they kind of get mixed up. And in my case. I didn't have these two categories. Uh, I was certainly not going to play the part of the immemorial Indian musician. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also not going to pretend to be a Western musician, as I might have when I was sixteen. Mm-hmm. But uh, but those both both those kind of not not only those inheritances and musical traditions, but you know both those ways of listening and thinking about music were coming together in me. As a Tori change to Leila in mm-hmm. the, in those in those notes, mm-hmm. and and so you know, um, what I, I suppose what I was exploring 
um, was not just an overlap, but certain accidents of of consciousness which are intrinsic intrinsic to being who we are now, who Indians are now, and maybe other people from other parts of the world, as long as they're alert to those kind of convergences, mm -hmm. uh, as long as they don't all go to India pretending, let's say, just to take an example, pretending they're Western. Mm -hmm. uh, so so that's, that, that's what I was exploring, and that's why it didn't quite, quite fall, that's one reason why it didn't fall into the fusion category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. And it's also, I mean, in a sense, I was just uh, alerted to this one passage from from the Immortal, uh, the Immortals, your which is your your two thousand and nine novel, which is a lot about um, uh, about these issues of music. It touches on that, and there's this this one passage where you're talking about the the, the key young male male uh, male figure, the, the the central character Nirmalia, and you the the, the narrating voice says here, uh, as he began to shed the the meanings he'd grown up with he busily assigned new ones. He felt almost belligerently in love with an idea to do with an immemorial sense of his country, and music was indispensable to it. The raga contained the land within it, its seasons, its times of day, its bird call, its clouds and heat. It gave him an ideal, magical sense of the country. And then this is the 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 line. The line I, I you know I can see that I, I don't want to read this autobiographically, but I can see that connecting to a certain phase of your own relationship to this music, and mm. and of course also a, a cultural narrative about this music, much bigger cultural. Narrative. But then, you know, the the narrating voice drops this one particular key line, which seems to me to pick up on a whole series of things that we've been talking about. So, so yes, this magical sense of the country, immemorial, etc. It was a fiction. He fell in love with. It was a fiction he fell in love mm -hmm. with. Having subscribed to the fiction, everything else was a corruption or aberration. So it's it's I, I just touching on that notion of yeah. a of a fiction of authenticity, mm. which is where, in a sense, your own your own wariness about claiming one thing is the authentic and another thing is not. But mm. that maybe the debate has now got beyond that. Um, yeah. Just going back to, to the way um, I sort of, um, how that fiction became so real to me. Mm. Uh, go, uh, going back to that and trying to explore it through, through, through proper fiction, mm -hmm. as it were, through the novel. Mm -hmm. um, and then realizing later when I began to listen to, let's say, pop music that I might have heard in the 70s, mm -hmm. when I began to listen to it again, just out of curiosity, in the 2000s, thinking how much more actually integral to the Bombay landscape uh, these pieces of music were than the kind of ragas I thought then mm -hmm. were part of that that landscape. Mm -hmm. Or maybe both are true, but but uh, but the, ex the, the experience of of things makes you revise uh, not just your notions of authenticity, but you know, I mean, the fact that you you're caught within meanings that are always being made, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and and yeah, um, so yeah, I, I think I think that that's also something that I'm trying to, in a sense, uh, enact and dramatize through the music. Mm -hmm. I think this is one thing that fiction, mu uh, sorry, that fusion music can do mm -hmm. is actually estrange us from these categories. Yeah. And and that's that's one of the things that I uh, 
quite like doing mm-hmm. with, with, with my music. Um, and the whole fusion thing, as you said, is related to notions that might have to do with multiculturalism, of, of the way we add up communities to, uh, to arrive at a multiculture, mm-hmm. or, or something that I kind of have written about in terms of the way we in India understand secularism, which we say is our own kind of neologism, you know, uh, um, and, and is a form of, I call it constitutional secularism, mm-hmm. uh, or the constitutional secular is, is how we understand various communities added up, come together to create the nation state mm-hmm. or our understanding of the secular and my understanding of how we are affected by each other as communities or religions or you know ways of life is different mm-hmm. and the same holds true for internationalism or you know how we understand you know the way uh, cosmopolitans take on board different cultures and mm-hmm. and again i think uh, the the echoes uh, we find suddenly we find ourselves confronted with are, are disorienting rather than you know, confirming, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that's what I've been trying to explore mm-hmm. through the writing and the music. Uh, the explore my kind of experience of the, the the disorienting echo, which then says that it's not enough for people in Calcutta or mm-hmm. in Delhi or in Brussels to be making certain kind of assumptions about where they are. Amit, thanks so much. The, I think the, the phrase disorienting echo is a, is a good moment to end. Thanks very much for doing this. Thank you. Thanks a lot.